The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ City, this is the word of the Lord. Well, there are texts of Scripture, and then there are texts of Scripture. Uh, There are passages like Psalm 23, uh, where everybody reads it and says, yes, this is my favorite passage in all of Scripture. And then there are passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, where I'm not sure that I've heard that from any of you guys, though, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Well, my name's Brant, if you've not yet had a chance to meet me, and it's my joy to bring you the Word of God this morning from this passage of Scripture. And it is the word of God for us. It is a good and a rich passage. And I'd like to invite you to uh, join your hearts together with mine as we pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Father, we do. We come before you this morning and we ask that you would help us. Lord, would you help us to see that, that your word is full of wisdom and what is right and what is good for your church. God, would you help us to humble ourselves, Lord, and to trust that your way and your path for flourishing, your path to happiness is better than our own. Lord, would you help us to embrace the life that we have been given, that we would feast richly on Jesus, Lord, that we would delight ourselves in him as your church. Lord, we just ask that you would do all that you want through this passage, that we would be willing clay, molded into your purposes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Inclusivity. Exclusivity. One of these words is a word that's held in fairly high regard in our culture, and one of them is a word that's not. To exclude somebody is to prevent or restrict the entrance of someone from a group of people or a place that they would like to go to. And generally, we don't like or want to be excluded. 
this week. Uh, it snowed a lot, you may have noticed. And um, one morning, I went out to go help our, our building manager shovel the snow on our sidewalk, and I brought Aryan with me, my little five-year-old son. I thought, well, he can you know, maybe push the shovel around a little bit. But I excluded Pepper, my two-year-old. And Pepper let me know in no uncertain terms how much she did not like to be excluded from the shoveling of snow. See, we don't always like exclusivity, don't like to be excluded, but we practice exclusivity widely in our culture. Something that we actually do all the time. Just consider your workplace. Your workplace is exclusive, I hope, to those that are competent in doing their jobs. Your favorite sports team, I hope, and maybe maybe you are very unhappy when this isn't the case, uh, it's exclusive to those that are competent as athletes that have reached that top tier of athleticism and do their jobs on whatever team and whatever sport it is that that you happen to enjoy. The roads of Vancouver ought to be exclusive to good drivers. And I think many of you express your frustration when this isn't the case. In Christ City, though it might offend your sensibilities for the church to represent Jesus Christ well to the world around us, we also must be an exclusive community. And I don't mean, I don't mean that that means that, that we're going to go stand by the front doors, going to have, you know, we're going to change our whole hospitality ministry, and we're going to now be pushing people out of the church. No, this is a church where we are welcoming where the doors are wide open to anyone from any background in whatever state of life they might happen to be in to come and to learn about Jesus together with us. We want to be a welcoming church. And yet, to belong here, to be recognized as a Christian member of this congregation, to be recognized as a brother or a sister in the family of God, then we must submit to Jesus Christ. We must live a life of repentance from sin. This morning, we're turning to our series in 1 Corinthians again. We've been uh, taking a break through December and the beginning of January, and we're picking up where we left off at the beginning of chapter 5 back in November. And up until that point in the letter, in those first four chapters, um, Paul has been writing to this church in Corinth, which is a place in modern-day Greece. And Paul's been rebuking the Corinthians. They had a lot that was going wrong in the church. His tone's been fairly strong. He's been rebuking them. They were immature, and they needed that correction because they were living according to human strength and human pride, and not according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not according to God's wisdom and his power that was shown for us in his sacrificial humble and self-giving death for us on the cross. And it made sense that they were struggling with this because they were from Corinth. Corinth is a powerful and a wealthy city. So the Corinthians began to put a lot of hope and a lot of confidence in power and in wealth. Put a lot of hope and a lot of confidence in social status. And what that meant was that their pride and, and this priority around the wealth and the power that they saw around them, it was causing disunity and division in the church. So imagine this. Imagine you come into the church in Corinth. 
Imagine you don't have status. Imagine you're poor. And you come in and you're not welcomed. You're kind of relegated out to the back corner. You're not invited to lunch after church because you're not someone that someone could invite and hope to rise the ranks of society by their invitation. Right? And they segregated out the church, you know, according to those who had more power and social status. And it caused division and disunity in the church. They're a prideful church and Paul's calling them to repentance for these things. And in chapter 5 now, where we're going to look at this morning, Paul begins to zero in on one specific way the church has become proud. And it's this. They become proud in this way as well. They tolerate. They tolerate unrepentant sinfulness in the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth. They become proud because they're tolerating unrepentant sinfulness in the church of Jesus and Corinth. So that's the background of our passage. And now we're going to open up the, the text and, and look and see the situation that Paul is confronting. And as we do that, we're going to have an outline that follows three points. We're going to look at the sin, kind of the situation and what was going on that Paul's addressing. We're going to look at the discipline, the judgment that Paul gives about what must be done. And we'll look at the celebration, and the reality and the division for what this is supposed to lead us to as a church when we do practice these things according to scripture. And I am praying for us, Christ City. Again, I realize that um, some people struggle with a passage like this one, and we often struggle ourselves with a passage like this. And I'm praying that as we look at the Word of God, we'd be moved to trust the Word of God. We'd move to trust that the Word of God is wise and good and will actually lead us to life. Let's look at our first point the sin and the situation that Paul addresses in the church of Corinth, starting in verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So the situation is that Paul has got a report back from the church in Corinth that there's sexual immorality that is existing in the church in Corinth. Now I need to say, just as we begin, that, that this text of scripture we're looking at this morning and the passage we're considering is really an internal church passage. It's a passage that's, that's Paul dealing with the problem within the church, not outside of the church. So as Christians, we, we are being instructed here about how to deal with sinfulness that is part of our church community. And that's different than the way that we deal with sinfulness outside of our church community. We're going to look a little bit more about the outside stuff next week. Jonathan will be preaching for us. He'll show us the way that we're to, to talk and to treat and to live with outsiders um, versus those that are inside. There's a distinction here. I, I want to say that out front very clearly. This is about how we live inside the church as Christians in our congregation together. And the situation that Paul's heard about is a sexual immorality that's existing here. And this term sexual immorality, it's a broad term that refers to acting on our sexual desires against God's good purposes for us in scripture. Acting on our desires in opposition to what scripture teaches. There's lots of ways to do this. 
There's lots of ways to be sexually immoral in this world. If you want a little bit of a list, you can turn in your own Bible to Leviticus chapter 18. That's the fourth book of the Bible. Go all the way back and there's a, there's a few things written down there. It's not an exhaustive list, but there's a few things there. But the bottom line is this. The Bible teaches that the sexual union was created by God as a gift for humankind. God made it. He designed it. It's a gift for us. But it's a gift to be enjoyed exclusively between a married man and a married woman who are married to one another. Anything else the Bible teaches is sexual immorality. And by the way, I think that it's important for you to know that that this is the way that the, the Bible's been read and interpreted for nearly 2,000 years by the church in whatever culture it's been part of. What I just said, this exclusive view of, of what is supposed to happen with our sexuality is taught in the Bible, that's a view that's upheld by Christians all over the world and has been that way for 2,000 years. There's a minority group that pushes against this, but it's very much a minority group. You need to realize that. This is how the Bible has faithfully been read for a long time in a wide variety of cultures. And Paul says there was sexual immorality in the church in Corinth. And on the one hand, that wasn't surprising because the Corinthian church often looked like more like Corinth than like Christ as we've been seeing. Often they looked more like Corinth than like Christ. And Corinth had this sort of business life like New York and a nightlife like Bangkok. Right? This is a this juxtaposition of, of this culture, this ancient culture, where the biblical teaching about sexuality, it would have been foreign to them. So if this stuff that we're talking about sounds strange to you, it sounded strange to the Corinthians. These are things they, they know, they've been taught by Paul, and yet they were not things that were just default teachings of their own culture. It wasn't what their culture taught. It wasn't what their culture believed. So on the one hand, it's not surprising there was sexual immorality here. But on the other hand, Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, even among those who are not Christians, for a man has his father's wife. See, someone in the church was having a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. Sorry, with his stepmother. Not mother-in-law, with his stepmother. Let me back that up. That would also be sexual immorality but with, uh, with his stepmother. No need to make it any worse than it already is, right? <laughs> and that was really, really clearly against what the Bible taught. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, there's a specific prohibition from a man uh, sleeping with his father's wife. That's forbidden. And that would have been bad enough to just reject what the Bible taught, but they were accepting in their own ranks of sexual immorality that was actually disgusting for the Roman culture. So in that old ancient Roman culture that embraced all kinds of sexual immorality, to do this, that would make a Corinthian blush. That that was over the top. And Paul writes that rather than being ashamed that this was happening and that it was happening in their church, Paul writes in verse 2, and you are arrogant. See, the Corinthians were arrogant because they tolerated sin. 
believing that they knew better than God what would lead to their flourishing and their happiness. They were arrogant because they thought in our sin, we know that, that behaving this way, it will actually be better than the things that God teaches us. I think it's striking how easily these words of Scripture can be applied to us today. We've talked about that a few times in our series already in 1 Corinthians, how this might be the easiest letter in the New Testament that could be applied easily in our own culture. Written to Corinth, just written to Vancouver. Almost the same thing. It's how many supposedly Christian congregations in Vancouver even, Christians that bear the name of Jesus, how many of them choose to celebrate what the Bible has explicitly prohibited? And when that's celebrated, what's the posture of those churches? Isn't it pride? Isn't it a pride that says, well, you know, with our intellectual rigor, we've uncovered some new interpretations from the Bible. And now at this stage in life, 2,000 years later, against the majority view that's been held by the church, this is how we must read Scripture. And in their pride, saying things like, you know what, and not only that, but we are on the right side of history and we'll take this minority view and we'll be brave in our stand against the rest of Christians who believe otherwise. I think you might even find that there are churches that believe this and in their pride they say, and not only that, but we are now positioning ourselves as teachers of the rest of the church. We need to be trailblazers. We need to teach the churches in Africa and in South America and in Asia and elsewhere in the world how to really interpret Scripture. Almost as if the, the old colonialism wasn't bad enough. Now we need to colonize with unbiblical and unchristian ideas. You see, the Christians or the Corinthians and often us, I think, are arrogant in our sin because we believe we know better than God what will lead to our flourishing and happiness. There's a question for us that, that we need to ask. Do we actually know better than God? Has rejecting God's teaching about sexuality, about sex in our culture, has that made a more flourishing culture? Has it led to our happiness? Has it increased social stability and mental health and family structures and a robust society? Has it done those things? You see, rejecting God's word about what is truly good for us as human beings cannot bring us the happiness that we desire. And his word is clear. Sex is for marriage. Between one man and one woman. To unite us together and to produce children. The Bible is clear about that. And to grow healthy and loving, loving families and to mature us to become self-sacrificing, loving members of God's church. There's a purpose to our sexuality that's good, the Bible teaches. And moreover, I think what's happening here, what Paul's clear about is, is terrible. He says, the thing the Corinthians were arrogant about, they should have been mourning over. You see that, verse, so you see that in verse 2? You're arrogant, but ought you not rather to mourn? Grace City, we need to realize that there is only one appropriate response for us 
when we see sin in our own lives and in the lives of those in our congregation. It's not to tolerate that sin. It's not to be ambivalent about that sin. It's not to look the other direction when, when, that, when it's happening. It's to deeply mourn that sin. It's to grieve the way that God is not being honored and not being obeyed. See, ambivalence about sin is just arrogance about sin in disguise. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what does Paul say the church ought to do? Well, look at our second point, the discipline in verses 3 to 5. Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So if you look at this passage and when we're talking about something called church discipline or at least the very end stage of this process that the Bible calls church discipline when someone's removed from the congregation, we need to know that this did not originate with Paul. It's not like Paul's going out on his own little vindictive get back action at somebody who's offended him in the congregation. This isn't originating with him. This comes from the way that a long time ago, God instructed the people of Israel far before Jesus came that they were to be a pure community of those that loved God and followed him in obedience. And that when that wasn't happening, someone must be put out of that society because they were to be a distinct community of those who followed God and were obeying him. And then as we look at the New Testament, Paul's not the first person to talk about this stuff. We actually see that Jesus is the one who taught about church discipline in Matthew chapter 18, verses 20 to 25. I'm not going to read the passage for you right now, but, but go and take a look at it later on or email me about it. We can talk about it if you want to. But this practice of, of putting out the, the unrepentant sinner it has an old heritage. It's not just a power play by Paul. So what this is then is this is Paul, the apostle who's been sent by Jesus, acting with the God-given authority that he's been entrusted with to teach the church, to teach them to obey Jesus Christ, to teach them to obey him by removing the unrepentant sinner from their midst. Look at verses four to five. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And here Paul instructs the church to do two things. To gather all together as one body and to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So we need to explain a little bit of what's going on here. First, when we come together as a church, Paul's talking about the way that we carry the authority of Jesus to put someone out of the congregation. He's got all this language that's kind of stacked up in this beautiful and mysterious way. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus here with us. And it's all referring to this beautiful mystery of who we are as a church, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit that we are united with Jesus, that we're united with one another, one body. And that when we gather together in this way, we have the authority and Jesus' presence along with us to put someone out 
side of the congregation. And under the direction of the elders, sometimes we've got to do this. Exercising authority to put someone out of the church. The second thing we need to see here, though, is that when Paul says the man must be handed over to Satan, he's not saying let's get together and have a seance sometime. He's not talking about some weird pagan spiritualism. He's talking very specifically about taking somebody who belongs to the realm of Jesus. In the realm of Jesus, that the new creation world on earth, the kingdom of heaven, is in the church. This is the bastion of the new life, the place of the new life that, that God is building. is in the church. This is the realm of Jesus. The realm of Satan is to be put outside of the church. To be brought or put outside of the church back into the realm of Satan, where this person's unrepentant sin clearly shows and demonstrates that they belong. It's not, it's not proper to have that inside this community. It has to go back outside where it belongs. And for the person being disciplined, this is a painful process. But Christ City, just because discipline is painful doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. And just because discipline is painful doesn't mean that it's not good. See, the author of Hebrews tells us this. Chapter 12, verses 10 to 11, he says, God disciplines us for our good. God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, Christ City discipline is meant for good. And there's a purpose for it even in this text. Look at what Paul says the purpose of the church discipline is in verse 5. He says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's twofold purpose statements here. First, the destruction of the flesh. He's not saying we want to have this man die. What he's saying is all that is of him in himself in that sinfulness and unrepentance to Jesus, we want that fleshiness to be killed. So that instead what would happen is he would live by the Holy Spirit, that life would flourish inside of him and that he would one day be saved. That, that Jesus would lead him to really see what the nature of his sin is to contend with it, to be led to repentance and mourning over that sin and so to be restored and saved and brought back into the church of Christ. So discipline is for a good reason. It's for growth and for maturity and salvation. And actually, by the way, we get a glimpse of discipline that works later on in the Corinthian letters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, we see a result of discipline where the repentant sinner is now brought back into the church, where they're welcomed, where they've repented of their sin and put it away. And they've come saying, no, I don't want to be part of, of the world of death outside of Jesus. I want to be part of this church. Come back in. I, I want to I be received. Would you forgive me? Would Jesus forgive me? And of course he does. And he welcomes the repentant sinner back in to be made whole. Look at the passage, 2 Corinthians um, 2 verses 6 to 8. Paul says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. He's talking about the disciplined person. 
So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Welcome him back. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That's how discipline is supposed to work. In Christ City, in the little bit of time that I've seen discipline at work, the few times that I've watched it at work in the church, this has been the result. It's been the repentant sinner welcomed back and their life with Jesus flourishing and increasing. So we discipline Christ City. In Christ City, we discipline because sometimes the arrogance that we have in our own lives and in our own sinfulness is really difficult to penetrate any other way. We just won't see our sin for what it is any other way. And if sin won't be repented of, then we need to be clear in this place about who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't. Discipline like the passage here in 1 Corinthians 5 and putting someone out of the church is reserved only for serious and unrepentant sins. So don't be afraid that suddenly we're going to do something new at Christ City Church. Right? I think there's that fear here. Like, oh man, I sinned today and I'm pretty sure all of a sudden I'm going to get a conversation with the elders. This is not the way that things are, are going here at this church. So don't be afraid. No, this is for serious unrepentant sin that has been rebuked and approached and talked to uh, a number of different times. And then finally, the last step is what Paul's describing here in this passage, where somebody's removed from the congregation. But far before that happens, far before that happens, discipline happens all the time here. You might not know it by that word, but whenever someone has approached you before and talked to you truthfully and honestly about something they see in your life, that's actually part of church discipline. It's part of a healthy church growing together to, to humble themselves, repent of their own sin, and then say, brother, I see this in your life. I don't think, I don't think it ought to be there as a follower of Jesus. And, and what usually happens is you're like, oh my goodness. I mean, I wasn't expecting that, but, but thank you. Uh, let me go and pray about that and think about that. And you know what? You're right. I need to repent. And we have this regular way of, of doing life together as a church where we call out one another's sin in a loving and a humble way in order that we would grow together to be more like Jesus. So I want to encourage you, be increasing in speaking the truth to one another as a congregation. Not in arrogance, there's no sin that you can confront in someone else's life that means that you're better than that person for not having it in your own life. Jesus is really clear in Matthew chapter 7 that, that when you go to talk to someone about their sin, make sure you remove the log from your own eye before you try to get close and pull the speck out of someone else's eye. He's saying, uh, else's eye. He's saying, go and deal with your own sin first. Take some time to be with the Lord and, and ask him to lead you to repentance in your own life before you speak someone, uh, to someone else about the sin that's in their life. But we should do this. We should be exhorting one another to follow Jesus as a congregation. Look at the way that the author of Hebrews tells us to do this in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin is deceitful. Sin hardens our hearts. Sin can stop us 
from experiencing the flourishing life that is in Jesus. So why would the Corinthians tolerate this sin then? What led them to this point? Well, ultimately, they, ultimately they tolerated this sin because they believed that tolerating it would increase their happiness and lead to further joy in their life. You see, this is always the way that we get ourselves into sin in this world. So we think that walking in sinfulness will make us happier and more joyful people. That's what we think. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It couldn't be further from the truth. Look at verses 6 to 8 in our last point, the celebration. Paul writes, Your boasting is not good. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, Paul's not suddenly become a uh, sour bread dough baker during a pandemic. He's not suddenly interested in baking for no reason and, and lamb and cooking and all these things. He's talking about something very specific. He's talking about leaven and sacrificial lambs to point to the most important festival in Jewish religious life, which is the festival of the Passover. And the Passover was the festival the Jews observed to celebrate the way that God had freed them from their slavery in Egypt. God had sent 10 plagues to Egypt, culminating in the 10th plague, which was the death of the firstborn male of everyone in Egypt. And after the 10th plague, when Israel was in slavery in Egypt, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh could not get rid of Israel fast enough. And the unleavened bread eaten at Passover, it comes from the fact that the Jews of those days didn't have time to make bread the usual way. God had swept them up and rescued them so quickly, they had to <clears throat> have unleavened bread. Excuse me. <clears throat> and the sacrificed lamb, on the other hand, it comes from the fact that God had instructed the Israelites that if they sacrificed a lamb and painted their doors with its blood, their doorposts and the, the, the lintels, the tops of the doors, then the destroying angel that brought God's judgment in the 10th plague to Egypt would pass over their houses. They would be saved. Their firstborn sons would be preserved. And Paul uses this Passover imagery for a purpose because he wants the church in Corinth to remember that they've been freed, not from Egypt, but from something far worse, from Satan and his lies in our lives, from the power of sin, keeping us captive in, in a living death versus the fullness of life that is in Jesus and freeing us from death so that we have the hope now of eternal life with God and the resurrection uh, with Jesus. And he wants us to know that we've had these things not by the sacrificed lamb's blood, but by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us on the cross. We are now those who are forgiven as Jesus dies in our place, washed clean by his blood. 
We are those who now that we've been forgiven are reconciled, brought back into a relationship, welcomed into the embrace of the Father, relationship with God. We are those that now have the Holy Spirit living within us as a gift from God. So new life is actually happening here in this community. So we're being made alive in Jesus. We're coming to be changed, be part of a new humanity, true, flourishing, real humanity in Jesus with life with God. And Paul wants the church in Corinth to know that just like Israel was identified by their flat bread and their bloody doorposts, we are recognized as a church by the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, reconciliation with God, and the Holy Spirit filling us with Jesus' life. See, on that day, you would have known who the Egyptian was and who the Israelite was. You look in their cupboard and see what kind of bread they had. On that day, you could have seen who the Egyptian was and who the Israelite was as you walked up to their house and you saw the color of their door. And with us, it ought to be the same. We've been called out of Egypt to be the people of God, marked with his blood and given new life by his spirit. And because all of that's true, then Paul is really, really clear about something. Because all of that's true, then we must preserve this precious identity that we have as a church. See, Paul writes in 5 verse 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do we have bakers here in the congregation this morning? Does anyone bake here? No one bakes. Not even one. One person. There's one person who bakes. Well, when you bake bread, I'm told, you have to use yeast. And the, the dough has to rise. But it doesn't take a lot of yeast for that, that yeast to make its way through the whole loaf and for the whole loaf to become leavened. Christ City, our identity as Jesus Church is so precious It's so precious it must be protected because it only takes a little leaven to cause the bread to rise. Because it only takes a little arrogantly tolerated and quietly boasted about sin in our community to negatively impact who we are as the church of Jesus. Paul says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new mump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, discipline is for the individual who has sinned that they might be saved. But it's also for the church that we would be in this world what we're called to be, a new humanity in Jesus Christ. That we would be a clear witness to Vancouver that God's life looks this way in this community as we are identified by him. Not identified by our sinfulness, but by our status as those who are forgiven. Those who are accepted by God. Those who are washed clean by his blood those who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, those who are being made new. Yes, we still sin, but we come back to God again and again in repentance and a humble faith. And he forgives our sin. And he again shows us his goodness and his love for us. And we are again filled up with love for him. And we put that sin to death and we walk more and more in the life that he's called us to be as beloved 
and treasured sons and daughters of God. This is our identity as a church of Christ. And in living this identity, there is joy and celebration and life. Christ City, this life that we have in Jesus is true life. It's true life. What we've been saved into is this glorious, beautiful thing as the children of God living how we were meant to actually live in this world in relationship with our God. But this celebration of life, Paul says, can't be celebrated with sin. Look at 5 verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, God doesn't cheap out on his kids. And unlike your parents, maybe at Christmas time, he doesn't buy you gifts that you don't like. And in calling us to wholehearted obedience, he's not trying to keep us from joy. He wants us to have further joy. Because all that he's created is best enjoyed, best received and delighted in, in obedience to him, as we live richly and deeply in relationship with God, not hiding and cultivating and keeping sin, but, but repenting of it and living further and further and more fully into the life that he's called us into. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Those are the lies of Satan in this world that say, come, life is this way. But Jesus says, I came that they may have a life and have it abundantly. True life is here. The festival of abundant life in relationship with God, it can't be celebrated by tolerating sin. It must be celebrated by sincere and true lives devoted to God. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So I want to I want to be clear here because I think some of you might be feeling, man, like is is Paul saying and does the Bible teach that that somehow I must be perfect then to be a Christian, that I don't belong to this community here at Christ City Church unless unless I'm perfect. I want to be clear that's not what Paul said any of this. That's not what Paul's saying. We know 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's good news for each one of us here this morning, no matter what the sin is in our lives that we're convicted of in this moment. The good news is that all of us can come to God confessing that sin, asking for the strength that he gives by his Holy Spirit to put that sin to death, And we can be received by God again and again with forgiveness and with love and with mercy. There's hope. There's good news here. You see, the opposite of perfection is repentance. The thing the Bible calls us to is not perfection, but to repentance, a life full of repentance and faith in Jesus, trusting that God is the one who will work in us to change us. So I want to encourage you, don't be discouraged by this passage. 
Be encouraged to put your sin to death and to run to God again and again and again to receive the forgiveness and the grace that he offers through Jesus. I want to close with this this morning. My wife at home likes to drink what she calls dilute juice. So every once in a while, I'll be shopping and she'll come to me and she'll say, Brent, can you buy some lemonade or can you buy some orange juice? And I know that when I go home, I'll, I'll bring it to her and she'll put about a quarter lemonade in a cup and she'll put uh, three quarters water. She greatly waters it down. I think it's disgusting. <laughs> it's awful. And what I want to say to you is that you don't want the church the way that my wife likes her juice. You don't want the church the way that my wife likes her juice. I mean this, Christ said, you don't want watered down Jesus. You don't want to be part of a church that wants only a little holiness. You don't want to be part of a church that wants only a little bit of the word of God. You don't want to be part of the church that wants only a little bit of the fullness of life that is in Jesus as we walk wholeheartedly with him, forgiven of our sins with his Holy Spirit changing our lives. Now you want the church 120 proof, straight, no ice. You want the power of the gospel to knock you back down in your seat. You want to be part of a church that feasts ritually in Jesus and holds fast to his words because it's only in this that life is. It's the only way to to know the fullness of life with God. It's where the power is. But for that to happen, we must be an exclusive church. A church that is welcoming to everyone. That preaches the gospel indiscriminately far and wide about the forgiveness of sin that is in Jesus. But a church that at the same time is clear about what it means to follow Jesus. A church that is at the same time clear that this congregation must be a church that is willing to practice discipline, that is willing to be pure as the bride of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I I pray that you would use this passage of Scripture. And would you use it in our lives to lead us to repentance. Lord, there's many of us here now that have sin pressing in on our lives that we've been tolerating for too long. Father, would you help us to be motivated by your gospel, by your love for us, confident that the power of your Holy Spirit has put sin to death in us so that we can actually begin to walk in life? Lord, would you help us then to, to put off these sins, Lord, to make an effort to repent of them, to turn away from them, to put them behind us, to become accountable to others, to make barriers between us and our sin that are necessary so that we will follow you in your ways of life. Lord, would you help us to do that, not as those that think we can somehow earn your salvation, but as an act of worship and thanksgiving that you are so good to save us. Lord, would you grow us up as a mature church? Would you increase our witness in Vancouver? In Jesus' name, amen.